This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Hello, and welcome to The Twilight Show. Thanks for joining me. Today, I'm joined by Natty Gonzalez Brandy, who is a teacher, teacher educator, and consultant based in Uruguay. Natty is also the owner of her own language school, and I'll be talking to Natty about this and lots of other things today, including the importance of teacher development. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and you are listening live. Tune in live at ttradio.org, or to join in the conversation, download the Podbean app and search Teachers Talk Radio. Follow the hashtag TT Radio. Tune in, talk it out with Teachers Talk Radio. Welcome to The Twilight Show, everyone. I'm Graham Stanley, speaking to you live from Mexico City. As I mentioned in the introduction to today's show, I'll be talking to Natty Gonzalez-Brandy. As well as a teacher and teacher educator, Natty is the owner of At Online English UY, Uruguay, which offers English courses to USL learners and teachers. She's also a freelance consultant, providing in-service professional development service. Now, I've known Natty for some time now. We first met at the IETEFL conference in the UK in 2012, just before I left to work in Uruguay. Shortly afterwards, Natty moved to Buenos Aires for work, but we did bump into each other a few times while I was living in Montevideo. And I remember a particularly memorable night sharing a pizza with her and others, for example. I know Natty is very passionate about teacher development, and so this is something I will definitely talk to her about. And when it comes to this, Natty is in favour of a well-designed and implemented programme, not one-off teacher training, mentioning to me recently that talks don't work. So I will want to explore her views on that as well. I'll be talking to Natty about this and more after the Teachers Talk radio news. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support. Whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers. This is Teachers Talk Radio, and this is Teachers Talk Radio News. The BBC covers reports that Labour has dropped plans to end charitable status for private schools. The status exempts some private schools in England and Wales from taxes. The Labour leader, Sir Keir Starmer, had previously said charitable status for private schools could not be justified. The party said it will still remove other tax breaks if it wins the next general election. 
There are around 2,500 private schools in England and Wales, and government figures show around half are registered as charities. Having charitable status means the schools cannot operate for profit and are eligible to claim some tax exemptions, including on donations and business rates. Since 2006, private schools have had to demonstrate they are creating public benefit in order to maintain their charitable status. Labour has said it would charge private schools 20% VAT and end business rates relief. It says this could raise an estimated £1.7 billion. A party spokesperson said the money would fund desperately needed teachers and mental health counselling in every secondary school. Last year, the Scottish Government scrapped business rate relief for private schools. The Conservatives have questioned whether tax changes would raise the £1.7 billion as claimed by Labour. The problem of RAC was highlighted again as parents with children at a secondary school in Durham, affected by the potentially unsafe concrete, staged a protest. Parents told Schools Minister Baroness Barron, who was visiting the school, that there had to be more support for the teachers and pupils and that the school must be rebuilt. The school is using a mix of face-to-face -face and online teaching after RAC was found shortly before the return to school from the summer break. The multi-academy trust in charge of the school has asked the DfE if it could use centre-assessed grades for GCSE and A-level pupils similar to the way assessment was used during the pandemic. A DfE spokesman said it was working to bring back face-to-face -face teaching quickly and that the school would be rebuilt. Procurement, design and planning stages would be started before the end of the year. Schools Week reports on MPs' comments that government should create a school absence code specifically for mental health and review the adequacy of health services struggling with soaring waiting lists. The Parliamentary Education Committee has also urged the government to make its daily attendance data collection mandatory as soon as possible. The committee found growing demand for mental health services and special educational needs support, as well as the cost of living pressures and other issues, have compounded problems with attendance. However, Schools Minister Nick Gibbs said changes would add further complications for schools in coding absence, which could damage the accuracy of data. Full details of the committee's recommendations can be found in the article in Schools Week Online. The Guardian covers news that in America, students at more than 50 high schools across the country are proposing a Green New Deal for schools. They are demanding that their districts teach climate justice, create pathways to green jobs and plan for climate disasters. The campaign is seen as a reaction to right-wing efforts to ban or suppress climate education and activism at school. The national effort would see teach-ins, walkouts and petitions. The New Deal also calls for updated buildings and infrastructure to make schools more climate resilient. Further details can be found on the Guardian website. Finally, the Nuffield Trust has said that student loans in England should be written off for certain health staff once they have completed 10 years of NHS service. It says this is needed to stop a dropout crisis among nurses, midwives and other frontline staff. Ministers have rejected the idea, saying support is already in place and that the current student finance system strikes the right balance between the interests of students and taxpayers, as well as highlighting training grants, support for childcare and some expenses. Tuition fees are not charged in Scotland 
and in Wales, tuition fees are covered if nurses and other frontline staff work for the NHS for two years. This has been your Teachers Talk Radio News with Joe Fox. Hello again. I was expecting the Tech Talk section, but it uh, it wasn't there. Okay, not to worry. Um, so, welcome back, everyone, and um, a welcome in particular to my special guest, Natty Gonzalez Brandy. Uh, Hi. Are you there? I am. Hello. How are you, Graham? Fantastic. I'm well, thank you. How are you? I'm okay, thanks. So thanks so much for joining me today, Natty. What have you been up to so far today? Well, I've actually taught our class already. I was wow. teaching advanced for three hours. And yeah, the lesson finished half an hour ago. <laughs> oh, wow. Was that face-to-face -face or online? Online. <laughs> are you teaching all your classes online at the moment? Most of them, yeah. I am doing some face-to-face uh, -face stuff uh, when it comes to uh, professional development and lesson observation, but most of my work is online. Right. Okay. Fantastic. So, Natty, I usually start by asking my guests uh, to talk about how they became involved in teaching. What, so, what, what about you? How, what was it about education teaching that attracted you to it? How did, how did you get started? Well, it was actually how things unfolded in a way. So I guess I was a very good student in secondary school. Um, and I had a knack for passing examinations. So people mm -hmm. sort of assumed I was clever. That's not necessarily the case, but <laughs> I had a knack for passing examinations. Um, I was really into helping um, my classmates uh, as well. So when my classmates struggle, I try to help them, even help them cheat sometimes because I'd oh, pass wow. on the correct answers. <laughs> if... you should, as a teacher, <laughs> you should never reveal that in case your students find uh, out. <laughs> I know, I know. Um, yeah, I have to, I have to confess. Um, <laughs> and so I thought, I never considered teaching as an option. Um, mm -hmm. I, I was a very passionate student about certain subjects and topics. I was really into history, philosophy, uh, and other subjects. And I obviously loved English and I loved learning English and it's something I'd done for years by the time I was 17 and I was sitting my proficiency exam then. Uh, but I went to the School of Humanities. For some reason, teaching was not something that I consider as an option. And at the School of Humanities, first lesson, uh, it was about research. And the first thing they said was, at the School of Humanities, we create knowledge. And they mentioned Vaz Ferreira, who's a very important person from the early mm -hmm. 20th century here in Uruguay. And they said that uh, at the teacher training school, people learn to pass on the knowledge that was created at the School of Humanity, which looking back, I think that's absurd. And I don't know if it, it was this person interpreting Vas Ferreira's words or it was actually Vas Ferreira saying that. I, I can see why they thought like that at the beginning of the 20th century. So imagine yeah. the world was, or at least my country was easily giving you a set of criteria saying that teaching wasn't 
a career that was respectful enough or that was as important. Uh, but for some reason, I went to the UK um, for a couple of months. And when I came back, I decided I was going to join uh, the teacher training school to make some money while I was studying to become a historian. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, that was the purpose. Make some money on the side and have fun. I thought, oh, it'd be fun. I like helping others. Um, and I remember the first days of the teacher training school, I was a bit confused, really, because I thought many of the things they were telling us about how to give instructions, warm-ups, I was like, but what paradigm is this based on? Where are you coming from? So I wasn't convinced about my choice. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, one day, uh, my trainer for uh, teaching young learners, that was year one, uh, was Nora Ramos. You've met Nora, I guess. Oh, yes, of course. And uh, I loved her. She was so good with children, all the things she did and everything she taught us. So eventually I was supposed to teach my first lesson uh, with Winnie the Witch. It was a reading lesson. And uh, there was a student who really reminded me of my eldest niece, Avril. And somehow all the things we'd learned I realized that they were helping me to get these kids to produce language, learn something, and I just fell in love with it. Uh, I think no sooner had that lesson finished, I ditched history altogether, and I decided I wanted to be a teacher, full-time teacher, and I really wanted to... It was that, that moment when I realized I was only 19, and I was like, God, they're actually learning these words and they're pronouncing them like this and they're talking to each other and they're like, they like the book, they're getting it. Uh, and, and this kid who reminded me of my niece, I was like, this is important. I also want my niece and people to get, like, I realize teaching is a really important profession, but I don't think uh, everyone knows that. I think people think of teaching kind of like as a, second-class profession. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I do know exactly what you mean. I think it's in most parts of the world, unfortunately, teaching seems to be something that is has a low social value, or not a low social value, a low social status, uh, unfortunately. I was talking uh, to a colleague of mine about this um, this week, actually, uh, mm -hmm. because she she went to Finland where the opposite is completely true and the Finnish educational system is sort of lauded as being you know what is the secret why have they managed to crack it and uh, I think we both agreed that it really is because in Finnish society as I understand it the role of the teacher that job is the best thing you can do and so it attracts the most qualified, passionate, experienced people from the universities, they choose teaching above anything else. And it has a high social status and teachers are valued and paid well. And I think in most other parts of the world, unfortunately, that isn't the case. I don't know if you agree with me. Absolutely. It's quite the opposite. Uh, mm. The salary is not good enough. So I've had uh, senior high school students come to me and say, I'd love to become a teacher, but my parents say I'll starve, so I'm going to choose something different. Uh, 
<laughs> yeah, and and I get it. It's not that that's hard, but certainly it's really difficult to get a decent pay, and and it requires so much energy, so much effort, so much yeah. development, investment. Yeah, it's why I think that in many countries in the world, there's a kind of shortage of um, teachers. When it comes to English teachers, for example, I know. Um, I know very well that it's a big problem in most countries in the region, in the Americas, for example. Uh, there's definitely a shortage of, of qualified and trained English teachers and a shortage of enough teachers who speak English very well. Indeed. And so many teachers leaving the profession as well, because yeah. for various reasons, Claire Venables recently shared uh, post on this, uh, so many articles are saying teachers are leaving the profession. So we've got a shortage yeah. of teachers, and then we've got people leaving the profession. I know it's it doesn't look good, but but let's not go down that sad sure. <laughs> sad <laughs> yeah. street for the moment. So uh, I'd like to to come back to where we first met. So we first met at a conference for teachers, IATEFL yeah. in Glasgow where we're both attending talks about the new remote teaching program that was being implemented in state primary schools in Uruguay. That mm -hmm. uh, I was very interested in that because I was about to leave Spain and move to Uruguay to start work um, involved in that program. Um, do you remember much about that time? Um, I think I remember that you and others were doubtful whether this was the most effective way of approaching the lack of teachers in Uruguay. And I wondered as well if you'd change your mind about it now. Uh, well, uh, doubtful is a polite way of putting it. I don't think <laughs> <laughs> we were being quite blunt. And I was very young then, I was 23. Uh, and yeah, I, I was very vocal about my initial prejudice and and thoughts uh, regarding that program. Um, initially, I was a bit sad because I felt they were investing in teaching kids, but without the human resources we've got in our country. Mm -hmm. So they weren't investing in teacher training and teaching education. Mm -hmm. um, so I felt a bit disappointed by that um, with a government, really. Um, but of course, uh, we were like, yeah, why are they doing this? And I remember as well, there was this presentation, which I didn't like that much because they were showing this like video, which was like the ad for the program. And mm -hmm. it was like a, a kid holding a flashcard and was like, this is red, el color rojo. And I was like, what, what, <laughs> what, the hell, what, what, what are they doing? Like, what are they gonna do? Is this serious enough? And as a 23 year old who just finished her Delta, I felt I knew everything, right? Like, which of course I didn't. Uh, so I was very blunt. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I I guess I said it. And well, uh, I looking back, um, I do think uh, it's true. We have a shortage of teachers. Uh, we needed uh, to put English in the agenda. And by that, I mean the government agenda. Mm -hmm. And um and then you, you and all the team came here and I saw that there was all this ex cultural exchange going on with the remote teachers, uh, with teachers from other parts of the world, uh, 
teaching our learners and them learning about uh, how other people from other parts of the world look like. Uruguay is a country which population is 95% white. Uh, so that cultural exchange was extremely enriching. Uh, and in addition to that, I know for certain uh, that things were done to help teachers improve their level of English. Uh, and you invited me to take part in uh, different uh, Euroteasel conferences and, and you were doing stuff to contribute to teacher training and, and bringing all these um, best practices from abroad and, and challenges as well. Uh, so it ended up being an interesting uh, cultural exchange opportunity and a way to exchange how certain things are done in other countries uh, in terms of teaching. I still think not enough uh, was done uh, to help train English teachers. But then, mm -hmm. of course, that wasn't the, the purpose of the program, right? It was to help the learners in state schools. Yes, exactly. No, it, it, was, it was quite interesting for me because I know, knew very little about the programme at all before I joined it. Um, so uh, it was very valuable for me to talk to you and others and to listen to the presentations, etc., to get an idea about it because I think it was kind of controversial. I think one of the, one of the things that was controversial is this idea of teaching online, which as we all know, post-pandemic has become a lot more normalized, if you like, and uh, more people do it like like yourself. And um, I think um, there was this sort of feeling about, um, about trying to do more to get teachers uh, to teach face-to-face -face back then. But one of the problems was definitely what we talked about earlier is that um, one of the problems about investing in um in in teachers um that uh you know for example you mentioned their english levels so investing in primary school teachers in a country and helping them increase their level of english for example quite often can have a the opposite effect to what you're actually trying to do as in a lot of the primary school teachers if the con if the state social status of the primary school teacher isn't high then as soon as they have a different skill set including for example good level of english a lot of them leave the profession yeah and so for the minute for ministry of education um quite often it can have the opposite effect to what they're trying to achieve like to increase the number of english teachers in primary schools if you invest in the english of the primary school teachers they often leave the profession that isn't the case with everyone of course and i'm generalizing but um i think uh that is true to say yeah but we do we do have a very serious issue that which is a, an important percentage of the people teaching english inside the classrooms uh, they have a knowledge of the English language, but they don't know about teaching. They haven't been exactly. to teacher training school. Uh, so an investment in training them in service, obviously, because it's the human resources yeah. we've got, uh, yeah. is, I think, is necessary. And, and, and people yeah. are still talking about it, and hopefully something will be done soon.
Yeah, no, I, I completely agree. I think there's so much you can do um, to help teachers with their jobs. And that is one of the most important things that you can definitely do, I think, to make uh, a teacher's life uh, better and easier um, to take the pressure off, etc. But to go back to conferences, Natty, you said in the chat when we were preparing for this <laughs> that you think talks don't work, by which I gathered you mean the types of professional development that happens at conferences. Uh, and I know that the well-known educator and author Michael Fullen has also said uh, that he thinks conference talks as professional development isn't very effective. Could you talk a little bit more about how you feel about this? Why don't talks work? Sure. <laughs> um, I guess talks are important and they are an incredible source of motivation to some teachers. Uh, I've met an incredible network of professionals uh, in conferences. I met you, I met Vicky Samuel who's here, uh, I met so many people uh, and they are my network, they are the people with whom I reflect. Um, so I do think they have a positive effect. However, when I say that talks don't work, I'm talking about the talks that are mandatory, that everyone yeah. should attend. Yeah. And uh, then people go there and they're showing, for instance, certain things you can do with technology. And inside the classrooms, uh, not in state schools, hopefully, thanks to Plan Ceval, but in many private schools, they lack technology they don't have so they talk about activities you can do with a projector and then you've got these teachers who don't even have a tv screen on yeah. inside their classrooms so uh i'm talking about these one-off sessions which are not meets based at all and yeah. i'm saying they don't work because there's research behind this and i i was uh, reading uh, recently something I always revisit by uh, Silvana Richardson from Argentina and Gabriel mm. Diaz Maggioli from Uruguay, uh, in which they talk about these one-off sessions which are not contextualized and are not needs-based. And there's been research conducted uh, which reflects that the impact they have on the classroom regarding what teachers do and regarding whether students learn uh, it's very hard to measure that impact and, 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 and it seems that there's very little impact. Um, people are not taking these things to their classrooms because they are one-off sessions which do not always consider the context. Yes, well we're in complete agreement then. I think what you've described, that, that kind of talk that is sort of imposed upon teachers it's top down it doesn't reflect uh, or take into account their needs what they need at the moment if it's organized by someone without any consultation or any sort of um just justification to try and understand what it is that teachers want and need that will help them in the classroom then it is completely ineffective i think completely especially as you say if it's a talk about something that teachers actually can't implement themselves in the classroom like they don't have the technology to do so then that's ridiculous but so we're definitely in agreement <laughs> but having said that graham um i've picked up so many things from talks 
when I first met Vicky, I remember all her work on project-based learning and, mm. and how she helped me having attended that talk and some follow-up talks and, and materials I read, it helped me to create my first uh, project-based unit. Uh, or I remember attending a talk uh, you gave at the Anglo conference uh, in which you talked about this game. I, t I no longer teach young learners, uh, but it was something about a murder mystery. So there was a murderer and there was a detective and they uh, went to yes. And I used that with my young learner students in Buenos Aires so much. And, and oh, fantastic. it led to so much production and, and, and they had fun. And sometimes like as a sort of like a settler, uh, they'd be like, can we play that game? And I'm like, sure. Uh, so <laughs> I've, I've, I've taken on board so many things uh, from talks, uh, but I've chosen to attend these talks. And when I can't, I don't yeah. go. Yeah. No, that's absolutely right. Uh, I, I'm exact in, in exactly the same boat as you. Um, that's what I love about attending conferences, for example, when there's a selection of of talks and workshops is such that uh, usually it's it's very difficult to choose between the sessions which one to attend etc and uh, I've had so many great ideas uh, um, as you, you said in the same way basically so yeah I think it's that it's that isn't it it's the it's a talk that is imposed upon teachers um That's when yeah in service talks that uh someone sort of decides what to do i've definitely been in a situation where i've worked in an organization where they forced us it was compulsory to attend regular professional development talks and some of them were useful and very valuable but i do remember um sitting through um a talk on neuro-linguistic programming that the person who was doing, was in charge of the teacher development at the place where I lived, uh, sorry, where I worked, um, decided that everybody, all the teachers needed to know about and being completely skeptical and bored and thinking that wasn't for me. Obviously mm -hmm. it is something that um, appeals to a lot of people, but it was definitely something I thought, no, this, this is not something I'm ever going to use. So that was a waste of my time. Hmm. Yeah, that happens uh, quite often. And again, it's a bit unfair because teachers have so much under the plate, uh, all this grading, all these responsibilities, so yeah. much to do. And there's so much that get paid, which is not much really. Uh, and then it's like, go and attend these talks and invest in your professional development and do this and do that. And well, problematic exactly so natty um before we turn to what kind of teacher development you think does work and mm -hmm. uh how you approach teacher development yourself i'd love to know about how you got involved in teacher education and teacher development and what it was that drew you um to it Sure. So um, soon after the Delta, um, I was very young again, I was offered a position as part of the director of studies team in Uruguay uh, with my friend and colleague, Lucila Canepa. And um, this involved going to the provinces in Uruguay 
to visit teachers. Uh, some of them are qualified, some of them aren't, and give them tips uh, regarding uh, how to help them. And back then, I didn't have any formal training in teaching education, uh, but I was so impressed because there were people who, for instance, weren't qualified and they were doing incredible things and and, and they were doing their best and learning on their own and so autonomous. And, and there were people who were also doing their best, but they really needed so much help in terms of like very simple procedures from giving instructions to reflecting on lesson goals and learning outcomes. And I felt there was so much I could do to contribute with them. Uh, but I knew I needed training. So eventually I did um, the IH certificate in teacher training, which was super helpful for me. And I, I discovered about how to do in-service training. And I learned about how to conduct effective feedback, which I did not know anything about. I think it often happens with teacher trainers is that we're teachers and certain people respect us because we've gone for more qualifications and things. And then like, would you like to become a director of studies or would you like to become a teacher trainer? And then we don't have much knowledge about teacher education. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, I realized it was something I wanted to work on. I also realized that I lacked my impact wasn't high. Uh, so I looked for uh, qualifications and I, I, I also looked for the network, IATFO and the professional development SIG, the digital education SIG. So I had to look for help. Yeah, I think, I think that's a very good way of approaching things, really. I think a lot of us, myself included, I, I certainly um, kind of was attracted to teacher development, teacher training through the conference presentation, etc. And one of the things that attracted me to it was basically my special interest in learning technologies in particular at the time um, that there didn't seem to be much of a focus on it or a lot of people who knew that much about it, at least where I worked back in Barcelona. And so I found myself just naturally giving teachers at the place where I worked um, workshops on how to use various tools, etc., and use them in a way that they would appeal to students and um, and serve the learning outcomes, etc. And then it was a natural step to move to talking at a local conference. And then what can I do after that? Well, let's see what the uh, international conference circuit was like. So that's how I got involved in teacher development. And I never really had any training. In fact, it's only very recently that I decided because we're, um, we're rolling out a teacher development program in the region starting, we started in mm -hmm. Brazil to help teachers or teacher educators who want a qualification to get one. I decided to sign up for one for it and do the qualification myself. And it was very intensive and very, uh, very, um, you know, very demanding, but actually I've really, uh, appreciated doing it. And I keep 
I kept thinking, I've just finished like a couple of weeks ago, kept thinking, I wish I'd done this earlier. <laughs> would have saved myself so much sort of, uh, so much, so many headaches and uh, I would have been much better at, at this if I'd done this. So like yourself, I think you kind of learn as you go along when you do it like that. But actually, as we all know, that taking a qualification, getting sort of directed training from someone can save you a lot of time and uh, and and save you from going down various dead ends can't it absolutely yeah but it does require investment in terms of time and also money and yeah it's difficult to find the time and it's teacher educators don't get paid much sorry I know. Uh, so there's also that yeah there's like okay i'm gonna do this certification or I'm going to go for this diploma in teacher education. I did it and I was lucky enough to have the support from my parents as well to help me mm -hmm. pay for this education. But I understand there's a lot we, we have to do because of our interests and learn as we go along uh, because it's difficult to go and get the qualifications uh, that will be useful for us. Yeah, definitely. The, the same is true when I when I did my masters, I did a masters in English language teaching and technology. But before signing up to doing that and paying to do that, I was like, um, is this going to be worth the money? <laughs> is it worth it? And ultimately you just have to go with your feeling and intuition and then what, you know, advice about from other people about what they say about furthering your education, etc. And it was definitely worth doing. And then if you get students' loans, you ha you find yourself in so much debt afterwards. <laughs> so I'm glad yeah. it was worth it. <laughs> yeah, fortunately for me, um, I, I'm old enough to have avoided the student loan period, <laughs> um, which is great. And also when I took my master's, I didn't, uh, I didn't take a loan to, to take it. I actually had the money, but it was whether to spend the money on that or something else. Yeah, I get it. Yeah. So um, as for teacher development, what aspects, Natty, do you think uh, when it comes to teacher development are important and effective? And how do you approach designing and implementing a teacher development program? Yeah. I wish I had the answers, all the answers <laughs> to that. Uh, the truth is, uh, these programs, it's more like, okay, let's try this and let's see if mm -hmm. it works out. Um, obviously, as I said, this idea of being needs-based. And, and when I talk about based on needs, I talk about the needs of the institution, yeah. the needs of the learners, and the needs of the teachers. Mm -hmm. um, so what do they need? And, and you've got very different contexts, right? Because you've got schools which offer 12 hours of instruction a week uh, in English, and you've got schools which offer two. And you've got schools which have uh, mostly qualified staff, and you've got schools which don't. And this doesn't depend exclusively um, on uh, the school paying more. It's sometimes it's a matter of certain places uh, which don't have many qualified teachers or places which mm -hmm. have no qualified teachers. Um, 
thankfully that's changing and Uruguay is offering more um, teacher training around the country. Uh, but well, you, you've got to work, as I've said, with the human resources we've got uh, and improve them because if they're really into the profession, well, we want to help these people. So the way I see it is like this idea of helping teachers to help learners. Mm -hmm. And then uh, you do have to carry out some sort of like diagnostic assessment to find out about uh, their best practices and their challenges. Uh, and both uh, in terms of the quality of the teaching and also in terms of the learning that's going on. Um, and mostly, I was talking yesterday to Adriana de los Santos, whom you also know, uh, mm. and and we were saying, um, she was telling me, I've, I've come to realize that when teachers come to you and they say, I need help on this, that's like, yeah, definitely, let's go for that. Because if the need is coming from them, if they've identified a need, that's an excellent opportunity. So I guess uh, you also get some of their needs from PDIs. I, I believe in professional development interviews. Uh, yeah. I believe that if you're taking the time to go and observe someone, then try to take the time to go and interview that person and find out about their beliefs, yeah. about what they like doing in the classroom and about what they think are their challenges. Uh, so it's, it's putting the teacher at the center of, of this, uh, the teacher and the learner at the center of this process and identifying uh, areas of improvement and, and trying to address these needs. And, and, and very often from a professional development interview, you can find out that teachers in a way know what they need, especially those who are very reflective. And if they're not, it's about encouraging them to reflect and ask certain questions about whether the learners engage, was there any learning going on what about the activities? Did they work? Did they understand what they have to do? So uh, I start with professional development interviews and some sort of like diagnostic observation uh, of uh, the teaching uh, and uh, the learners as well in order to think about how to tackle that uh, so that it's needs-based and uh, Initially, we set objectives which are realistic, uh, that provide support, and that we hope will be impactful. Uh, that's the first steps. <laughs> yeah, that's so. That's in really in interesting. That's so true. I think I, I I think that's a great way to approach this. Um, I like what you said about this idea of the professional development interview. And you know, finding out from the teachers, having the teachers self, uh, you know, try to promote their self awareness about what they think they need is so important. But also, I I like the idea of you doing a diagnostic observation as well, because quite often I think teachers, and I include myself in this, we we think we want or need something. And we think we are at a particular stage of our teaching or teacher development um, that we know how we are and what we need to develop in. But then 
an observation can often um, be a kind of rude awakening and reveal something that we didn't know about our teaching, for example, or the opposite. Yeah. You can find that I've, I've come across teachers who are very underconfident sometimes, or they are very humble about some of the things they do. And they think that they need help with a particular aspect of teaching when the opposite is true and they actually do it very well. Um, so I think that, that observation is a really key aspect that every teacher should really embrace, I think, to be able to understand from another person um, how it can be. And the observation doesn't have to be from, uh, you know, someone who's managing the teacher or whatever. It can be from a peer or even a self-observation, which I think is also another uh, really interesting way of approaching it. For sure, for sure. Um, yeah, it's funny you mentioned that because I, I have so many teachers who talk to me about, oh, I need to improve my pronunciation. And, and I offer a pronunciation course. And, and very often the ones that say that to me, uh, they have great, uh, uh, a great command of sounds and, and they have some command of intonation. And, but of course, they're so, so aware of pronunciation that they think that's the main thing they need to address. And, mm. and then it's like, but look, look at you, look all the things you're doing, look all the sounds you're producing. It's like, I think you're a good model. Like go for like, sometimes you have to say to them, like you, you've got it. Yeah, for sure. So that there's this aspect of confidence as well. And then there are the yeah. people who think that what they do is perfect. Um, and and yeah. well, there we it's this thing of like encouraging reflection, which is one of the hardest things to do, I find. Like the people yeah. who think that their practice is perfect because it works, or they say that to you, it's difficult to work uh, with those professionals. Yes. Uh, I, I I completely agree with you. Chris Fry in the chat uh, has a comment about an alternative observation. So Chris says, I had a wonderful alternative observation where I brought with me a collection of material I had adapted or produced, and we talked about this material and the ideas behind them for an hour. So I, I love this idea of observation as being a kind of professional development tool and not as it is most usually used as being something to sort of um, used when we are kind of looking at a teacher and trying to judge quality of teaching, for example, or it being something that is necessary to do for uh, for imposed upon the teacher from the institution or the project or program, etc. I think that they are often sometimes necessary but um i think this idea of embracing of teachers embracing different types of observation like the one that sure. chris uh, suggests there is a really it's a really good way I'm, i remember one of the best professional development um things i ever did was um i videoed myself teaching a particularly difficult young learner class when I worked in mm -hmm. Barcelona and then I sat with my line manager and he went through the video and he started talking about the students and their behavior during the lesson and I spotted things I would never have spotted 
or known about um, if I hadn't watched myself teach. And my teaching before and after what doing that observation, watching that video was was completely different. And it's it's funny what you're saying. Again, yesterday with Adriana on our way to this conference, uh, we were discussing um, some methods, very old-fashioned methods we had going around mm -hmm. here, which was basically uh, the trainer interrupting your lesson and being like, do it again in front of the learners. Can oh, you really? It? Yeah, that happened here about 30 years ago, I'd say. Mm. Uh, but of course, we said, this was this this was difficult but at the same time it was like okay okay uh, this is a problem videos give you the opportunity to identify that and rethink that with a person you're talking to without it being obtrusive or having mm -hmm. a negative impact on the learners um so i i do see it as a very powerful tool and um now that I teach online, I get to video myself quite a lot. And, and hmm. when watching the recordings, there are certain things I find about my teaching that I'm like, oh, my God, why am I doing this? Uh, because it does help with awareness as well. But having yeah. the opportunity to reflect on this video with another person, that's very powerful because you can rethink it. You can think about how you do it differently and why. And you can also think about identify the best practices, identify the things that are really working uh, in order to share it with others, in order to keep doing it. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, you're already in step two. Step two has to do with, OK, we've identified the needs. Now, what do we do about the needs? Yeah. And I think that's, yeah. Yeah, that is... Uh... It's really useful, I think, to do that. Um, and as I said, I think I'm a big fan of different types of observations to help teachers uh, reflect on the way they're teaching and to develop. So, yeah, yeah um, I'm going to come back to, I know that you've worked in, I, I know at least you've worked in both Uruguay and Argentina, uh, mm -hmm. Nati and that um, I'd love, even though the two places where you've worked, Buenos Aires and Montevideo, quite close to each other, I'd love to hear any reflections you have on what's different or what's similar between them as far as teaching English teaching uh, and teachers are concerned. Um, if you would like to talk about that, what did you find um, when you moved to Argentina and how was the education system? How did, uh, how were things different or similar to, or different from the expectations you had? Sure. So, you could talk about? Um, in Argentina, I worked at a language school. Um, mm. and then as an, as a Cambridge examiner, I did go to, um, several schools but i never taught at a school i worked All at a right. language school so you know these are very different hmm. um schemes but I, I i i was a teacher trainer in in both countries and and there were certain things i discovered which were very interesting i've noticed that uruguay is a bit more obsessed with international exam assessment mm -hmm. um and in in, our, in argentina the level is great like uh, the level is, is, is 
uh, is solid, but they're not as obsessed uh, with uh, international exam assessment, that's for certain. Um, it's not like all the schools are like, oh, you've got to sit this exam and that exam when you're mm -hmm. seven, when you're 10, when you're 15. Um, and I also discovered that um, in, in Uruguay, and I include myself uh, on this boat, uh, we, as teachers and, and as people in general, we, we very quickly say no. And, and we have this tendency to say no, but. Uh, so like initially we, have, have you heard this? I mean, being in Uruguay, have you heard this? Teacher saying to you, no, but. I have heard it. I didn't think it was particularly Uruguayan to say that though. I think it's kind of universal, but it's interesting know, to hear what but, you. Uh, but very often you mean yes and, uh, but we're a bit more, um, and I can give you a very easy example. Um, I remember in Argentina, Mm -hmm. I was working on uh, syllabus design mm -hmm. and uh, we identified that we were working with books which were a bit too dense. Uh, so we decided to have some leave outs. Uh, we suggested certain leave outs. Um, of course, this was just a suggestion um, because I see the book as a resource and not another resource and not as a script to follow, you know, mm -hmm. and this is something yeah. I'm quoting Adriana here because she said this yesterday. And um, uh, in Argentina, the teachers were like happy. They were like, oh, great. So we get to do other stuff. And, and I remember it was quite interesting because there was this particular book in which the leave out was unit one. Uh, but it wasn't mandatory. It was optional. But we were like, OK, this is not really uh, what the students who come from the previous level need. So you can leave out unit one. Uh, also, because there was some very important stuff uh, that we had, we thought it was imp important to address uh, at the end of, of the book, towards the last units of the book. And then, uh, so the teacher's reaction in Argentina was great. And then I came here and the teacher's reaction was like, how, why would you leave out unit one? Students would perceive it in a very negative way. And, and what if I can cover all the book? <laughs> and so uh, I'd say um, in, in Uruguay, uh, we question things quite a lot. Uh, in Argentina, they do as well. But in Uruguay, we, we have this quick tendency to say no. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a feeling. I'm not sure uh, it's 100% like that. But I know the reactions from the staff in Argentina were, oh, fantastic, you're alleviating the pain, we have to cover fewer units. And the reaction in Uruguay was like, what? No, why? Uh, and it, um, they were both reflecting uh, because they were both talking about whether to leave out certain things and, and they were all involved in the process. Uh, but I, I have found it more difficult to implement change in Uruguay for some reason. That's really interesting to hear you say that, actually. Um, when it comes to um, using books, etc., I remember back in Barcelona when I was teaching young learners there and the all the students, parents were asked to buy, uh, buy a set book for the classes. And again, a language academy uh, was mm -hmm. the was the context. And I remember that some of the teachers um, were 
not very happy with the books that were chosen and they decided not to use the books very much mm -hmm. with the resulting um what well, it had the result that a lot of the parents if a teacher didn't use the book much would necessarily be complaining about the fact that they'd bought a book and uh, and it wasn't really being used and some of the students as well uh, then just stopped bringing the book to class etc so it's kind of interesting um, but I do like the idea of the leave outs that you've said and the idea of giving a teacher flexibility when it comes to what materials to use yeah and I I've had those complaints as well um, as a as a coordinator and uh, that's why we we started working on on this idea of the leave out with Lisa Phillips mm. back in the day because it was like okay um, if you start from unit one and you do till unit six and then parents realize not only parents but also students realize that they didn't do anything in unit seven eight nine ten eleven there's this feeling that you haven't completed the course mm. and perhaps you haven't because perhaps there are reasons why certain uh, communicative outcomes and grammar structures and vocabulary items are there in unit 7, 8, 9, 10, 11. Uh, so this idea of reflecting on the book, thinking about what the students already bring and finding opportunities to leave out certain things so that perhaps what's in unit 12, which is often very important, not always, but often, um, is not left out. That, that, that was the idea, that, that was the reason why we were working on identifying opportunities to leave out certain things, uh, so that they'd have this sense of completion, uh, but without having to do every single thing that's in the book. There's also the responsibility of the managers um, to be very clear with parents and, and explain that sometimes you're working with a book, but you're not doing the activity in the book because for certain reason, let's say you're dealing with food and, and books very quickly uh, usually bring things that you don't get to see much in Uruguay. So they bring raspberries mm. and our students, they rarely see raspberries in the supermarket, <laughs> uh, yeah. but they don't bring pear for instance and that's something that's very common in our country um so you have to say to parents the fact that you see that there are certain things that haven't been done in the book doesn't mm -hmm. mean that they're not working with the book it's just that they're playing a game with it or they've taken out of the book and they've adapted it um i i i firmly believe we have to defend teachers and 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 really explain to parents okay we're asking you to buy the book because it's an important resource uh but you cannot bring all these expectations to us and say you haven't done 20 pages of the book it was a waste of money um and then of course there's a reflection because if you're not using the book at all then why are you asking parents to buy this expensive resource uh but if you are using it and if you are working with it then what's the problem? Like parents sometimes bring all these expectations and, and, and often we have to say, okay, we're making principal decisions here and, and we have to defend the staff and we have to say, 
your kids are working with a book and they're learning, you may not see that they've done every single exercise. That's okay. Yeah. I think also if you, the way that you describe doing it, like getting together and thinking it through and deciding what was necessary and what wasn't, there's a lot of um, evidence there that you can use if a parent challenges uh, you about why things were left out, etc., which is always good. Yeah. Yeah, all these, well, and again, that's also part of um, a good professional development, uh, a good in-service professional development program, reflecting yeah. on the materials, seeing if both the teachers and the students can handle the materials well. Uh, we had a situation here with a book we implemented a couple of years ago, um, and mm -hmm. uh, parents came to complain because they couldn't help their kids to do the activities they had for homework because the workbook was indeed very challenging in terms of instructions. And um, a decision was made, which was to stop using workbooks altogether. Mm. Um, and I wasn't happy with that decision at all. What I thought was that when choosing that book, we'd fail to analyze the workbook. Um, and, and, and there's something that, that, that was a lesson learned. When you're going to choose certain materials, if you're asking for the course book and the workbook, you have to make sure that you've seen both and you've thought about the learner and whether they'll be able to cope with materials from the workbook for self-study. Uh, however, uh, what ended up happening was that uh, for many years, they stopped using workbooks altogether. And, and the, there was also this thing about parents complaining that the workbooks weren't being checked by the teacher. The teacher wasn't taking the workbooks home. Hmm. Uh, so that, that solution of saying, let's stop using workbooks altogether, uh, it seemed like a solution um, to reduce the number of complaints, uh, but I do wonder uh, about the impact on the learners. Uh, I, I wasn't very pleased uh, with that solution, which came, which was bottom up. It came from the manager, obviously. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think a lot of the times, not always, but a lot of the workbooks, that's where the practice activities are. Exactly. So if, if you're not doing anything from the workbooks, then the students aren't getting enough practice to be able to uh, to be able to become fluent in whatever the language is they need uh, to improve. Yeah, on. it's practice, and it's practice that should be autonomous in a way. Hmm. Um, so that that's why. I, I think you're coming up there with a set of criteria to evaluate whether workbooks work or don't. Uh, and that's an aspect of adapting a series of books. Is the workbook effective in, in terms of A, does it provide them with practice? B, is it practice that's appropriate for the age and level? And C, um, will they be able to do it on their own? And then check in class in a way that doesn't mean teachers taking the word books home. Yeah. Uh, and, and well, we could keep talking about this, but <laughs> yeah. Of course, maybe to draw this 
talk about workbooks and materials to a close. There's a comment from Chris in the in the chat, Chris Fry in Barcelona. He says, mm -hmm. at one time I asked my students to rate each of the units in the book that we were going to use. The ones with the lowest rating were not used, and I then used a mixture of levels of popularity. Sadly, shortly after we got the order to cover an exact block of units each term, which was justified by complaints from the small number of students who changed classes that they had to repeat the same unit. So oh. I don't think there's any any solution to this, but uh, you just have to muddle on through and work it out dynamically depending on the group, don't you think? Yeah, and, and also assess, like, there are these comments from the book and, and, and they said you pilot the book for one year. So I guess the second year, what, what Chris is saying is crucial there, having feedback from the learners and yeah. the teachers and the institution yeah. and someone looking at the Common European Framework of Reference and seeing if it matches what they're doing, that, that's important so that yeah. all the institution is on board regarding uh, what to do uh, with the books and what to cover and what not to cover. But I love the spirit of this because, again, we're seeing the book as a resource, not as a script, which says how we should teach. Yeah. Um, and, and often uh, I've, I've been involved in some materials writing and it's called my attention that you're working on the course book, but someone else is working on the teacher's book and someone else is working on the workbook. So uh, you end up finding very often a lot of discrepancies between the three. And, and that has to be part of the thinking we do when we choose to adapt certain materials. You'd, you'd hope, though, Natty, that the editor would, would be keeping an eye on, on that and making sure that it was all coherent. But is that not the case sometimes, you think? It's not the case sometimes. No, I've seen um, lexical I, certain lexical items being taught in the course book and then uh, they have the crossword in the workbook and it's um, different words, very, yeah. not different topics, uh, but very different words. Of course, you can exploit that for uh, uh, expansion opportunities. Uh, but in that case, you'd have to do that activity in class or make sure you yeah. cover those lexical items when teaching. Um, and yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. And what you said about evaluating the course books, etc., is something that I am the best example of that is, again, when I worked in Barcelona, we had an end of year survey about our, the course books we used for different levels, that they were sort of recommended course books for each of the levels that we taught in the place mm -hmm. where I worked. And the teachers... We didn't ask the students to do it, but we did ask the teachers to give feedback on each of the levels. And any course book that fell below a particular rating out of 10, that would be dropped and the it replaced. Uh, but any course book that was uh, you know, rating consistently high, I think it was definitely above 6.5, then it would mm -hmm. be kept, which I think was interesting. And the other thing which I think is really important, which I know a lot of, in particular a lot of language academies, but I think a lot of schools don't do as well, is that they don't have a particular syllabus. They just use the contents of a book um, when it comes to a language course, at least, as the syllabus, which is a mistake. And I think back in 
that situation in Barcelona, we definitely, we had a syllabus and the directors, one of the jobs of the directors of director of studies was actually to match any book to the syllabus and then to offer additional material where the book didn't cover things in, in the syllabus. And again, to suggest leaving out parts of a book that were dealing with things that weren't in the syllabus as well. Mm -hmm. I, I guess, that, yeah, I think in Uruguay, um, and I'm talking about uh, services offered by uh, certain institutions um, that, well, schools tend to adapt their uh, syllabi. Um, we have that problem. Uh, the, the syllabus becomes a script and it's like week one, pages two, three and four. It doesn't say pages two, three and four, but it says reading and it's the description of the text which appears in the course book. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, it's a challenge uh, we've got here because again, that's not needs based. It's a top down decision which says this yeah. is the course book. You go, you teach it. Yeah. I mean, in some in some cases where the publisher and the course book writers have done their job well, they do offer something that is very comprehensive um, mm -hmm. and that is um, well responded to by learners and based on the needs of that level of learner, what they actually need to do to be able to improve in the way that they should improve. But in other cases, you get the feeling that it hasn't been that rigorous. Absolutely, absolutely. And then that's why we should be um, an aspect of uh, professional development to work on is getting people on board uh, when it comes to assessing whether certain materials are conducive to learning. Um, they're mentioning homework here. Um, also, like, what's the purpose mm. of homework? What about the aims, the learning outcomes? I think usually uh, it's usually the case that when we identify the needs of the teachers and the students in certain institutions, we have to focus on uh, aims, objectives and learning outcomes. And um, reflecting on the materials uh, is another aspect uh, in which we could get everyone on board, the learners, the teachers and the institution. Yeah. Definitely. So, Natty, I know that I think, well, I think you've also recently set up your own business as a consultant mm -hmm. and teacher, teacher educator. And a few weeks ago, I talked to another teacher, teacher educator, Alicia in Peru, about how she did this. And it was fascinating to hear her talk about how it kind of developed. So I'd love to hear from you why you decided to go out on your own and what challenges you've had uh, along the way? Sure. So, um, well, many aspects here. Um, I know we, as teachers, we don't usually talk about money, but the truth is after the pandemic, I was mm. uh, broke. <laughs> right. uh, during the pandemic, uh, we were on a special type of work leave, uh, which meant uh, we were making less money. And um, I thought it, it was really unfair. I understand it was a difficult time for institutions in general, mm -hmm. uh, but I felt that the pay was really unfair. And I thought, okay, I've been training students for exams for a very long time. 
Mm-hmm. Um, it's one of my strengths. Um, so I'd start my own business. I'll try to have impact and help others and people from different parts of Uruguay. And hopefully I'll be able to solve this economic situation. Um, mm-hmm. That was my initial thought. Uh, and and I, I did have to reflect on, on my best practices and what I could offer best. Mm-hmm. Um, and not, I mean, I'd broken my arm, um, before in 2019 mm-hmm. and which also led to, uh, economic problems and a lot of investment in rehab and things like that. And I changed a bit because my life was all about my arm. Uh, and I realized I was devoting so much time to the institutions I worked for. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, 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 and when everything is about whether you can move your arm or not, you end up realizing that it's not all about work, you know, yeah. uh, we, we take our body for granted as teachers. And I think we're sometimes, I think it was Ken Robinson saying this, like we take our heads to work, <laughs> uh, uh, but we've also got our bodies. So I, I did want to work less, um, and, uh, I, I didn't want to devote all of my time to someone else's institution uh, and, mm-hmm. and to the profit of that institution. Although I'm very grateful uh, for the institutions I worked for, uh, mm-hmm. but I, I felt it was a bit unfair. Uh, so I said, okay, I've got this experience. I'll give this a try. And um, Claire Venables helped me enormously and all my friends in English language teaching mm-hmm. uh, that listened to me and talked to me. And I said, okay, uh, I'm going to advertise it on Instagram. Mm-hmm. I discovered that in order to advertise things on Instagram, you also have to uh, design material that's useful for people mm-hmm. in order to get the followers and the interaction I soon discovered that the algorithm is mean. So you have to keep feeding it, you know, you have to content uh, to the algorithm. And of course you have to pay for ads. Uh, But well, I had this idea in mind, which was I'm going to train people for international examinations. I'm going to advertise this on Instagram. Uh, And on Instagram, I'm going to create content that's useful for Uruguayan learners yeah. Uh, so that they follow me and they interact with me and I find out about their needs and that's what I've been doing and I, I can tell you it's working I, I do have Great. to pay for ads mm-hmm. um, you do have issues people dropping out I work mostly with young adults young adults are very busy uh, we all know, I mean, I've joined French lessons and Portuguese lessons a million times and I end up dropping out. So mm. I, I know, I know firsthand, uh, that that's an issue. Uh, but if you offer a good service, uh, there's word of mouth and then there's, uh, social networks that can help you, uh, to get there. Uh, but you do have to show who you are. You do have to. Uh, make sure that this is growing organically. A lot of teachers buy followers and uh, the algorithm allows you to buy followers, but it's also you're also killing your page because uh, they will assume that you've got, let's say, 20,000 followers, 
mm -hmm. uh, but only 2,000 interact with you. Uh, so if you're going to start your business and you're going to advertise it on Instagram or on Facebook or whatever it is you're going to advertise it on, do not buy followers because it will lower your visibility. Right. That's really good advice. And why Instagram? Was it because you knew that the that your the audience of students that you wanted to reach are the kinds of people who will use Instagram? You just knew yeah. that? Or did you do any other sort of research into it? Uh, no, I knew I was pitching teenagers and young adults. And back then, they were on Instagram and uh, younger people were on TikTok. Uh, nowadays, we've got a, a mixture. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm on TikTok, but I don't really know how to use it. So I'm not advertising. I, I'm struggling with that. Uh, I should expand to TikTok. Uh, uh, but yeah, I thought Instagram uh, was a good idea. Uh, my friend Claire was doing it on Instagram. I gave it a try and it worked. And I was able to find 30 students uh, to teach four groups uh, within the first two months. Uh, so the fact that it worked made me think, okay, I'm going to keep working on this platform. Great. Oh, that's really good. I'm, I'm glad to hear that it's uh, working out and uh, that you managed to get um, 30 students pretty much straight away. That's really good news. Yeah. Um, of course, there were, there were people who knew me as well. So, oh, there's that static. I think showing your face is important. Hmm. And 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 providing useful advice to everyone. Community managers uh, like to say that uh, your Instagram followers and the people who interact with you are your community. Uh, I was like, what community? But in a way, it's true to a certain extent. Uh, there are people who will not be your students for various reasons, uh, but they come to you with questions, and it's nice to help out. It's nice to uh, offer content and, and share ideas um, and and then everyone values that so these people end up recommending you to someone else who wants to join your courses uh, but there's investment it's not just advertising your courses there's things you've got to give to people uh, so that they follow you and they respect you uh, and then eventually uh, your business starts growing Unfortunately, it's time consuming and there are all the other projects that are behind the scenes and that are not on Instagram, which are the most important one, in this yeah. case, teaching. Yes. Um, so it's hard to strike a good balance between the two. And a lot of people look for help and, and get people uh, to edit their videos. I think that's an excellent idea if you can afford it because it's, it's an expensive service. Yes, no. Great advice, Nati. And um, do you find all of your students that you've been able to get through doing this are actually physically based in Uruguay? Or do, do you have any students that are actually based elsewhere? I've had a couple of students based in uh, Chile, Peru and Argentina. Mm. Um, it's kind of difficult to process uh, payments um, in those cases and to invoice them a bit complicated uh but i love having a bit of variety um i think my courses are designed for people with 
Spanish as a first language. And mm -hmm. I'm very proud to say that. And I think about the Uruguayan culture a lot uh, when teaching uh, these levels, because I, I want to ensure that th they can talk about the things that are relevant to us. Yeah. Uh, so I'd say my courses are mostly for Uruguayan learners, although we love it when people from other countries join us. Uh, but we, there we need to find out about their culture and their needs mm. uh, so that we can provide the best services possible. Um, but yeah, mostly for Uruguayan learners and for sure um, people with Spanish as a first language. Because uh, I think that's... Um, I do love multilingual uh, lessons, lessons that in which you have learners from different parts of the world. Uh, but having students who speak Spanish, all of them speak Spanish, uh, allows you to help them to address uh, certain needs and, and, and mistakes they make that come from Spanish and that can allow for all that reflection. Uh, and I've been teaching monolingual lessons for so long that I, I think I'm, I, I, I've got the gist of certain things that our learners need. And that's why I'm proud to say I love teaching people who speak Spanish as a first language. That's great. And I guess also you're providing a kind of niche. Um, so you're providing a, a service that uh, in particular Uruguayan uh, learners will appreciate because they probably find it would find it difficult to get elsewhere. Exactly, and that's why if you check out my Instagram page, you'll find that I uh, talk about how to describe mate to a foreigner, uh, <laughs> or how to um, yeah, because that's what I want. I want to help. Do you, you do you teach learners. about the do you teach about the chivito? That's what I'm interested in. You know what, Graham? I think my next video is going to be about uh, how to uh, explain what a chivito is. I have used it in my lessons. I haven't mm. designed a, a, I haven't designed content for Instagram on the chivito. Uh, it's a very specific steak sandwich for anyone listening to us. It's tenderloin in general. Oh yeah, <laughs> it became my my one of my obsessions when I was uh, living in Montevideo, and uh, there are places that that serve it in all sorts of different ways and in fact in two weeks time i'm i'm coming back to montevideo and i'm looking forward to seeing how the chivito scene has changed I, i'm guessing like in most places post pandemic there are places that have closed places that have opened but i'm hoping i can find and still find a good chivito in montevideo I know your favorite spot still exists because we've talked about this before in funny in fact I remember I had a friend coming from Argentina and I wanted to take her to the best Chivito place. And I just mm -hmm. moved back to Uruguay and I texted you, Graham. I was like, where? <laughs> so I was texting you. You're from the UK. I was texting you. I was like, Graham's the expert. He'll tell me where to go to. <laughs> and you did. But it, isn't that funny, though? Because um, quite often when you're from a place, um, it's it's difficult for you to give or even not even from a place when you've lived there for a long time. So it's, it's sort of the case to a yeah, certain extent. But the extent. place I used to take people to had closed down. I used uh, to take people okay. to uh, a place called El Manchester. Uh, 
Oh, <laughs> uh, yes, I remember El Manchester. And, it's closed, uh, is it? Oh, yeah, what a shame. it's closed. It's become one of these chains now, sadly. Right. Uh, so I had to ask for advice, and I knew you were the expert. <laughs> well, I was no longer. I've been away for five years, so I'm looking forward to seeing what's new, what what's out there. So look, it'll be good. I love to teach. Uh, I love to um, cook my own chivito. Or you ah, guys here. that's really nice that's uh, yeah. quite a skill assembling cooking and assembling a chavito is quite a daunting task i think i tried once and then decided that it was too difficult thing is if i cook a chavito i need to bake the bread myself oh so, bear with me that was very time consuming if we can, yeah if we can we'll do it yeah fantastic <laughs> Okay, so Natty, I want to thank you very, very much for you. for your time and for being able to catch up with you today. It's been a great pleasure and uh, been really interesting to hear your thoughts on teacher development and, and other aspects of, of education, of teaching English. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Before we go, what what does the future hold for for you? Is there anything that you would like to, any area you would like to move into that you're not doing at the moment? Would you like to do more of something, less of something? Sure. I'd love to do more of um, in-service uh, professional development. Mm -hmm. uh, that's uh, what I like to do. And I like to team up with people whom I know can do this very well. Mm -hmm. um at the moment i'm offering my services freelance uh, mm -hmm. and i'm working for a school i used to work for uh by going to uh, one of the schools in their network and providing these services uh and i'd love to continue offering this um because in a way i think um it's when i feel best because i feel that by helping other teachers i'm helping a lot more students in the classroom um, and 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 that's uh, something I really love to do and I'd feel really good about myself uh, if I were able to continue offering these services and then I'd love to go back teaching young to teaching young learners because I miss them and I love teaching young learners more difficult to do online I guess I guess most yeah. of the young learner classes are face-to-face I, I prefer it face to face. I know there are people who offer good services online, but I prefer it face to face. So who knows, I may end up having my own face to face young learners class at some institution. Who knows? Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, well, thank you again. Um, it's been great to talk to you. And well, I look forward to being able to speak to you in person um, in a couple of weeks yeah. time. Yeah, so you're going to the UK, but then you're coming to Uruguay, jeez. Yeah, it's it's quite intense. I'm going back to the UK next week because it's my father's 90th birthday. Wow. And uh, so I'm looking forward to celebrating with him and the family. Big and then event. I'm coming back briefly um, mid-October for a couple of days, and then I'll be on another plane to Montevideo for a week. <laughs> there you go. Okay, so busy times ahead, but exciting. Yeah, busy but exciting, exactly. 
that's the way to approach it, I think, definitely. I don't like traveling as much as I used to, but mm. necessary evil to be able to be in the places you want to be. Absolutely. Okay, Natty, thanks again. Thank you. And so that brings us to the end of today's Twilight Show, everybody. Many thanks to today's guest, Natty Gonzalez-Brandy, and all of you who joined us live. That's it from me. There are Teacher's Talk radio shows all week on a manner on all manner of different and interesting topics. So please listen in live to the or, or to the recordings. And I hope you will join me again very shortly, uh, hopefully next week, if I can do this um, and fit it in with my father's 90th birthday celebrations. At uh, the same time, um, bye for now. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio. Teaching is a rewarding profession, but it comes with its fair share of challenges. That's where ADAPT come in. We're not your typical trade union, but instead a modern, apolitical alternative, offering expert legal, employment and mental health support. Protection without the politics. So what makes ADAPT different? We're always apolitical and independent, specialised solely in supporting individual teachers. Our caseworkers are professionally qualified, ensuring you always get the best advice. Plus, there's 24-7 mental health support whether it's a simple contract check or handling serious allegations, EDAPT are here for you. Join the thousands of educators who've chosen EDAPT to protect their careers. Subscribe at edapt.org.uk today. EDAPT. Supporting school staff. Protecting careers.